Well, it's good to be back here. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. We're going to look at the woman caught in adultery in verses 1 to 11, but I want to begin our reading to set it in its larger context in John chapter 7. There's a couple of places in the Gospel narratives where there's a statement made concerning the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to forgive sin, and then it's almost as if John anticipates persons saying, well, what what kind of sin? In Matthew 9, for instance, Jesus heals a paralytic, and he does so to demonstrate that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. Well, in the next section, it's the salvation of Matthew, the tax collector. In Luke 18, the Lord Jesus talks about how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into heaven. So the apostles, the disciples say, well, who then can be saved? And of course, Christ says, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Well, then in Luke 19, you have the account of Zacchaeus. Here's a rich man who enters by grace into the kingdom of God. Well, this woman caught in adultery is obviously a sinner. She's a wretch. She is found out in the act of adultery. But I want to begin the reading in John 7 at verse 37. Notice it says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, 
Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you that the heavens declare your glory, your majesty, and your righteousness. We thank you that that empty tomb in the Lord's Day Sabbath declares your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness. And we ask now that you would guide our thoughts by the power of your Holy Spirit as we consider this woman caught in the act of adultery. We ask that you would forgive us for all of our sin and unrighteousness and uncleanness and everything that darkens our minds. We pray that the Spirit would indeed impress upon us once again the power of our blessed Savior and the salvation of sinners. And God, for any and all who've come here this morning that are dead in their trespasses and sins, we pray that you would awaken them, that you would show them their sin, show them that thirst that Jesus addresses in, in John seven thirty seven, And may they, by grace, come to him and believe on him for that forgiveness that only you can give. And we ask this in the name of and for the glory of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, essentially what you have in John's gospel in John chapter 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles. So that was a, uh, a week-long feast, and Jesus goes to that feast. He stands in the midst of the temple, and there he teaches. And he ends that teaching, as we see in verse 37 of chapter 7. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, obviously, there were those who by grace would come to him, but there was a sharp animosity growing amongst the religious leaders against him. They want to kill him. John chapter 5, they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath and of engaging in blasphemy. So they want to murder him. Jesus knows that, according to John 7, and he's hesitant to go to Jerusalem for that particular feast. But he does go, he there teaches, and that animosity only grows on the part of the religious leaders. Now, I want to say something that might be controversial. I'm sorry, don't want to trigger you or anything like that. It wasn't a matter of theology. It wasn't a matter of religion. At this point, it was a matter of politics. Jesus was a threat to the system, and the system did not like that, and the system wanted to counter that by taking him, by laying hands on him, and by destroying him. You see that very often repeated in chapter 7. You see it at the end of chapter 7 in verses 45 to 52 with the animosity of these religious leaders again. They're upset. They don't like this. They don't like his teaching. They don't like that everybody comes to him. They don't like that he's popular amongst the people. And they even go about uh, insulting anybody that disagrees with that. Notice the officers, verse 47, these were like the temple police, the temple guards. They'd been dispatched to seize Jesus and bring him to the Sanhedrin. So the officers did not bring him. And the officers answered the question, verse 46, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Typical response from political officials. Officials, You don't tow the party line, so therefore you must be deceived. Notice, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? This appeal to authority or this appeal to, to, the, to the religious leadership. None of us have actually deigned to believe in him, so you ought not to either. And then notice their, 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 their uh, animosity toward the crowd. Verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is is accursed. 
So they're writing everybody off. If you don't agree with us, you're just dead to us. And then Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, John 3, being one of them, a member of the Sanhedrin, says, does not our, or does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? You know what he's doing? He's saying, chill out, relax. The law of Moses does not endorse this kind of mob mentality. So how do they respond to that? They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? They knew that he wasn't. They were simply insulting him. And then they said, search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. That is patently false. Jonah hailed from Galilee. So this is the backdrop to this woman caught in adultery. So I want to look first at the woman brought to Christ in verses 1 to 6, and then secondly, the woman forgiven by Christ in verses 7 to 11. Notice the setting in verses 1 and 2. So verse uh, 53 in chapter 7 says, And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So the Mount of Olives, Bethany was nearby, so Mary, Martha, Lazarus lived there. So no doubt he went to meet with them. But he comes back the next day after this Feast of Tabernacles is over, early in the morning. He assumes the posture of an official rabbi. He sits down to teach. But notice that all the people draw nigh to hear him. All the crowds wanted to hear them. How do you think the religious leaders would respond to this? They already hate him. The animosity has grown. The enmity is there. They want to destroy him. And now they continually are reminded about his popularity in the fact that all these people are coming to him in order that they might hear him. Now, notice the particular accusation made against the woman in verses 3 and 4. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So the woman was caught in adultery. Not anywhere in this passage does Jesus deny this. Not anywhere in this passage does Jesus Jesus say, well, no, I don't think that's the case. In fact, when he pronounces forgiveness upon her, he says, go and sin no more. The specific reference is go and sin this sin no more. Generally, go and sin no more, rather be a man or a woman, rather of faith and repentance. But the sin in view is the sin of adultery. So the woman was caught in adultery. Now, the woman had committed a capital offense. In Leviticus 20 at verse 10, it says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife and the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So it is a capital offense that she was caught doing. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. So it's a very uh, serious crime, a capital offense. It's something that's very bad. And so they come to Jesus in order to get his verdict with reference to this particular woman. Now, the formal charge is stated in verse 4. They said to him, excuse me for just a moment. All this smoke is settling probably in all of our lungs in very unhealthy ways. But notice what their formal charge is in verse 4. Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, I don't want to get too psychological, but think about this poor woman. Not that she isn't guiltless, not that she isn't a sinner, but she's being exposed to everybody. Not because the religious leaders care one bit about her. They don't care about the law of Moses. 
They don't care about due process. They don't care about any of that. And John is going to tell us as much in verses five and six. But before we proceed, if the woman was caught in the very act of adultery, what does that mean? That means there would have had to have been a man present as well. A woman couldn't engage in adultery by herself. A woman had to have a man present in order to be found in the very act. Where's the man? Again, they don't care. They don't care about the woman. They don't care about the law. They don't care about Moses. They certainly don't care about Jesus, except in so far as they want to liquidate him. So when they're bandying this about that she's caught in the very act, it's interesting because in Deuteronomy 22, 22, I just read it. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, that's crucial to prove the charge of adultery. You have to find them in the very act. Now, notice in terms of the issue at play, verses five and six, they say, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So they appealed to Moses. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Here's what I think they're doing at this point. I think they're going tit for tat with our blessed Savior. You go back to John 7 at the Feast of the Tabernacles, a Feast of Tabernacles. Again, already looked, I mentioned earlier, look at verse one. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. And then dropping down to verse 19, when he's challenged in terms of his authority, did not Moses give you the law yet? None of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Remember at the end in uh, uh, John 7 at verse 50, Nicodemus said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? So both Jesus and Nicodemus appeal to the law of Moses in order to make a point against the religious leadership. So now they bring this woman caught in the very act of adultery to Jesus in order to make a point. They're trying to put Jesus on the, the, the horns of a dilemma. Now, in doing this, Jesus was not a civil authority, wasn't a judge, wasn't a magistrate, didn't have that authority from the state in order to be carrying this out. He wasn't a part of the Sanhedrin, didn't work for the Roman government. It was not his jurisdiction. He was neither an ecclesiastical authority. Now, we know him as Messiah. We know him as the Christ, the son of the living and true God, but he didn't have a position within the church or the people of God at that time to be able able to adjudicate in this particular matter. Their interest is not in the law. Their interest is investing Jesus. They want to destroy him. They want to put him to death. This is what is driving them. This is what motivates them. And so what they do is they put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. So notice what John tells us in verse six. This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Now, the particular dilemma involved here, Copy in a book on logic, defines a, the horns of a dilemma this way. We've all been in this position at some time or other. It's a common form of argument in ordinary discourse in which it is claimed that a choice must be made between two alternatives, both of which are bad. If you don't like cruciferous vegetables and your mother says, do you want broccoli or cauliflower? You're hooped. There's no good way around that. 
There's no satisfactory answer. If you happen to be a vegan and you're out for dinner and they say you can have the steak or the chicken, that's going to be a challenge to your delicate sensitivities. This is the horns of a dilemma. Two options, both are equally bad. Now, here's the specifics relative to our blessed Lord. The religious, or rather the nature of the, the, the dilemma is simple. If Jesus is pro-Moses, if he says, yes, take the woman out and stone her, then he's anti-compassion. He's not a friend for sinners. But if he's pro-compassion, if he is in fact a, a friend of sinners, then he's anti-Moses. And you don't want to be anti-Moses in this particular situation, but as well, you don't want to be anti-compassion when you're the savior of the world. And so this is the horns of the dilemma that Jesus is given. Now, notice this action of Jesus in verse 6b. Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now, as you might imagine, there's speculation as to what he wrote. He wrote out the Ten Commandments. He wrote out the Seventh Commandment. We have no idea what he wrote. But that he wrote and that John tells us he wrote with his finger might suggest something in terms of his reference to the law. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 31, at verse 18, we read this. And when he, God, had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with what? The finger of God. Deuteronomy 9.10. Then Yahweh delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. The Lord Jesus is, in fact, the lawgiver. He is not going to compromise the law of Moses because it is the law of God. We talk about it being the law of Moses. Moses was a mediator. Moses delivered that word of the living and true God. And so Jesus, as we see at least symbolically here, is not going to betray that law. But if we know anything about Jesus, he's not going to betray this woman either. What kind of thirsty sinners can come to the Savior for drink? It's adulteresses, it's adulterers, it's drug addicts, it's derelicts, it's self-righteous, it's all manner of sinners can come to our blessed Savior and find relief, find forgiveness, find the imputed righteousness that is given to us and received by faith alone. This blessed Christ is pro-Moses and he's pro-compassion, and that's how he's going to proceed when he deals specifically with this particular issue. So that's the woman brought to Christ. Let's look now at the woman forgiven by Christ in verses 7 to 11. In the first place, we ought to appreciate the application of the law. Now, he doesn't say in the book of Deuteronomy, it says this, so therefore, this is what I say to you. But he does appeal to the law. The words that he speaks is obvious. So the scribes and the Pharisees continue to press him, verse 7. So when they continued asking him, remember, he's stooped down, he's writing in the dirt, the woman's still standing there in her shame and, and guilt and no doubt revulsion for what she's been found out in. These Pharisees and scribes, though, they, they've got to test Jesus. I mean, that's the issue, right? Not due process, not this woman should be executed quickly. None of that. She, or rather, they only want to deal with Jesus. So the Pharisees and scribes continue to press him, and the Lord Jesus upholds the law of Moses. Look at verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. 
the Lord demands witnesses. Again, he's not a civil authority. He's not an ecclesiastical authority. Rather, he does know what they're doing. They're testing him. They want to see what he'll do as he's placed on the horns of a dilemma. Are you pro-Moses or are you pro-compassion? So he appeals to the law of Moses. The Lord demands witnesses. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7. Whoever is deserving of death, so a capital offense is in play here. You know, modern proponents of anti-death penalty principles say, well, you know, on the basis of death penalty principles, the, the rivers would run red with blood. No, two or three witnesses are absolutely crucial or you don't have a capital execution. So whoever, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. What do you think that would do to you? If you knew that when you offered up testimony about the, 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 the crime of another, you were going to be tasked with picking up a stone and delivering the first blow on that guilty, vile criminal. Brethren, we read these things, and I don't think we ponder that. What are the implications of that? If I give testimony and that person is found guilty, I'm going to have to pick up a stone, and I'm going to have to bash them in the head with it to try to make them die. There is a gravity about biblical law that persons don't fo uh, focus on. Oh, yeah, the rivers are run, you know, red with blood. No, they wouldn't. Goes on to say, the hands of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 to 21, it demands two or three witnesses in a capital offense as well. But you know what else it does? It puts onus on the witness. The witness comes before the judge, and the witness says this particular person is guilty of a capital offense. Now, if it is found out by the judge that the witness is a false witness, whatever the guilty guy would have gotten, the witness gets. Do you, do you get that? So if I say, hey, Alan, I saw him, you know, rob a bank and shoot somebody in the head, and I bring him before the judges, and the judges say, no, that wasn't him. We've got surveillance footage. It was, you know, Howie. Well, what happens to me? They put me to death because what I wanted to happen with reference to him was false testimony. So, brethren, when you read the Old Testament, you say, well, you know, the, the gutters will run red with blood. No, they wouldn't. The people of Israel were taught to fear Yahweh. And they were taught about due process of the law and the right application of the law. We have those prohibitions against judgment relative on the wealth or poverty of another person. It doesn't matter if a man is, is wealthy. If he's guilty, he's guilty. It doesn't matter if a man is poor. If he's guilty, he's guilty. In Isaiah 11, there's a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. You know what it says? He won't judge by the seeing of the eyes. Rather, the idea is, it's not the, the, the messianic expectation wasn't for a blind Messiah, but it was like Lady Justice. Lady Justice holds those scales in her hand, and she's blindfolded. Why? Because as one popular commentator has reminded us of a biblical principle, the facts don't care about your feelings. 
It shouldn't matter whether you're wealthy. Shouldn't matter matter whether you're poor. It matters what is right and wrong. And biblical law was focused upon that. So Jesus, Jesus appeals to witnesses. Now the Lord demands not just witnesses, but responsible witnesses. Notice in verse seven, he was without sin among you. He who is without sin among you. This isn't a demand for a sinlessly perfect person because then we'd never have civil judgment. If it was a requirement for a civil judge to be perfect, we'd have no civil judges. I think the intention of our Savior is he who is without this particular sin among you. Now, they are, because according to verse 9, they're all convicted, and they all wander off. But what's the principle involved? If you're going to render judgment against somebody for a particular crime, you ought not to be guilty of that self-same crime. It's a principle that we ought to expect in terms of the bench relative to the various cases that are brought before it. The demand is one who is not guilty of this particular sin. Matthew Poole said, he said, in reason, those who are zealous for the punishment of others should neither be guilty of the same nor of greater crimes themselves. Now, that would probably remove every judge from every bench and every place in North America. So I guess, thankfully, we can't really know for sure. But as well, Meredith Klein says a minimum of two witnesses was required, and their confidence in their own testimony was to be evidenced by their assuming the dread responsibility of delivering the first and quite possibly lethal blows in the execution of the condemned. And so when Jesus says, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first, he appeals to the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, you see an example in Deuteronomy 13 as well. And with reference to this exercise of judicial responsibility, it has to be a person that's not more guilty of the criminal themselves. I mean, again, it would be great if everybody on the bench would recuse themselves. They say, well, I can't, you know, make an adjudication here because I'm guilty of the same thing. I do the uh, 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 self-same acts of wickedness that this person has done. Now, notice he stoops back down to write on the ground, verse 8. We don't know what he writes here any more than we know what he wrote in verse 6. We don't need to write long commentaries on what Jesus possibly wrote in verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, notice the conviction of the accusers. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, before we wonder or think, well, how could they have all been guilty of that? They were all guilty of that, brethren. Do do you think that it's just today that guys are unfaithful? Do do you think that it's just now in the 21st century that, that persons commit adultery? You know, again, when we read those passages, say, for instance, Luke 15, 1 and 2, then all the tax collectors and all the sinners drew near him to hear him. What kind of sinners? Bad ones, wretched ones, sinners that stood in need of blood, the blood of atonement, the righteous blood of the lamb, sinners that needed to be plunged beneath that flood to lose all their guilty stains. Zechariah promised in 13.1, there's going to be a fountain open in that day for sin and uncleanness. So when we look at a passage like this, it shouldn't surprise us that they were guilty of violating the seventh commandment. We just saw in 719 that they're guilty of violating the sixth commandment. They want to murder an innocent man, brethren. Never forget that. 
You know what the apostle says in Hebrews 7? He was wholly harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners. What? Why the animosity? Why the outrage? Why the anger and enmity? Why the, the desire on their part to decimate this one who was, in fact, the son of God? Because they couldn't stand him. John 3 makes it clear. The, the darkness hates the light. The darkness doesn't come to the light. Why? Because then the darkness is exposed for what it is, evil and corrupt. Drop down in John 8, you'll see it wasn't just the, the seventh commandment they had a problem with, and it wasn't just the sixth commandment that they had a problem with, but something reflected in the prophets of old. If you have a problem with the first and second commandment, then everything else goes awry from there. Look at verse 19. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. I'm not justifying it. I'm not substantiating it. But from a devilish and demonic perspective, I can see why they did hate him. I mean, he, these guys were the, the champions of the, Israel, uh, of, of the religion of Israel. These were the, the highest political, ethical, and, and religious and spiritual authorities in Israel at that particular time. And what is Jesus saying to them? I'm from Yahweh. And because you reject me, you don't have Yahweh. Now, again, I know why at the end of John 8, they pick up stones to throw at him because him being a man made himself equal with God, not justifying, not substantiating it, but recognizing that devilish demonic persons, when they're confronted by the light, function or respond in a way that's consistent with their master. John 8, you're of your father who? The devil and the desires of your father you want to do. You're not being forced into it. You are choosing this path of deception and lies, and you're choosing this path of murder. And so the Lord Jesus Christ indicts them. They broke not only the sixth commandment, they want to murder him, the seventh commandment when he says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then as well, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So the Yahweh that they claimed allegiance to, when he sent the son of his love, his only begotten son, and they resist him and reject him, they resist and reject the one who sent him. This is language utilized by our Lord at least to about 20 times up until John chapter 8. He refers to the father as the one who sent and himself as being the one sent by the father. He wants to show his divine origin. He wants to underscore his relation with the father. And yet they reject that, they resist that. Back to verse nine, then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. She's just kind of incidental to this story. She's just standing there in her guilt and her shame. And again, probably her embarrassment at being trotted out into this kangaroo court with a man who didn't have the authority, civilly or ecclesiastically, to render a particular verdict. So now Jesus addresses the woman specifically. Notice in verses 9 and 10, uh, or in verse 10, when Jesus had raised, raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Has no one condemned you? Has there been no two or three witnesses? Remember, we're proceeding according to the law of Moses. She can't be executed unless there's two or three witnesses. What's he doing? He's upholding the law of Moses. He's pro-Moses. Well, in the absence of witnesses, we can't take up stones to throw at this particular woman. Now notice verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. 
These men are trying to accuse him. These men are trying to test him. And this guilty, vile, helpless woman addresses him as Lord. Now, it could be like sir as well, but sometimes persons in the Gospels spoke better than they recognized. It could also be Lord, Savior, Master, King, Son of God, sent for us men and for our salvation, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Now, whether she knew all that at that particular time, she would certainly do so when she reflected upon the Gospel of John. So the absence of witnesses meant there was no criminal case in which to proceed. Now notice, the uh, narrative doesn't end. So verse 11, Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. So neither do I condemn you, just like I mentioned, with reference to Matthew 9, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Matthew then rehearses for us his, his call to conversion. And with reference to Zacchaeus, the guy was a wretch, obviously. He, he, he pled, he, he pleaded with Jesus, or he said, I will restore, I will give back. He's, he's making his confession of sin. And how does that narrative end? So that you may know that the Son of Man did not, uh, uh, came to seek and to save that which was lost. We see the same pronouncement made upon this particular woman. So when he says, neither do I condemn you, that means he has forgiven her. He then says, go and sin no more. Again, the specific meaning is no longer engage in adultery. Jesus wasn't a Wesleyan perfectionist. Jesus didn't have a, a, a concept of sinless perfection on this side of glory. That's simply not a biblical reality. So when he says, go and sin no more, it functions two ways. First, specifically, don't be an adulteress anymore. Don't get caught in the very act. Don't lay with other men. Don't engage in that misuse of your body. But then generally, go and sin no more. Live a life of righteousness. Pursue those things that are pleasing to God. Romans 13, 14, put on, uh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. 2 Corinthians 7, perfecting fear in the holiness of God. Hebrews 12, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So he is issuing that faith and repentance when we come to the blessed Savior. So Christ upholds the law of Moses. Christ affirms that he is the savior for sinners. And he thus goes through their horns of a dilemma. And it doesn't make them say, wow, what a wise fellow. What a wonderful man. Teach us more so we can be your disciples. Their animosity only rages. It only increases. And we know that it is pinnacled when they cry away with him, away with him, crucify him. Now, in conclusion, with reference to the death penalty, because this passage is often used by uh, opponents to the death penalty, to say, well, our Lord didn't demand it. Yes, he did. The Lord upheld the law of Moses. Genesis 9 is the, the, the foundational Old Testament text. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed, for in the image of God he made man. That for in the image of God he made man could go one of two ways. That could legitimize the agency of man as being the one who executes criminal offenders. I don't think it is that. I think it is because in the image of man or in the image of God, man was made. He has such preciousness, such dignity. You don't find that in the creation account. Birds are wonderful. Whales are wonderful. Mountains are wonderful. The creation around us is wonderful. But there is one pinnacle or apex relative to God's created order, and it is man. 
Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. To assault man is to assault the divine majesty. And that's the theological rationale in the Noahic covenant, which is operative today. But when we move to the pages of the New Testament, Romans chapter 13, when we're going through the whole COVID shutdown and that passage was being used against us, well, you're supposed to submit to the governing authorities. Well, how many of those guys using it as a club that way actually listen to the text? The text demands capital punishment, Romans 13, 4. He is an avenger of God's wrath in time and space, in history. The, the, the text ends, or uh, 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 Romans 12 ends, with us not avenging ourselves, but giving place to wrath. That's not just in the eternal order, but that's amongst the civil state. The, the government properly functioned. I'm not sure I want to hand the sword over to Justin Trudeau, but a, a, a government properly functioning, thinking through these things and not being so wound up about climate change and, and about things that really don't matter, but rather the execution of justice in the civil order, they would see that this is their responsibility. Yeah, we're, we're to be subject to the governing authority, for there is no authority except from God. But when that civil authority tells us to disobey God, then resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. It's a very simple argument. I don't know how we missed it. I don't know how we didn't see it. I don't know how every church did not stay open in that COVID lockdown. It is a foundational principle. We must obey God rather than men. But the demands of Romans 13, or what Romans 13 corroborates, is the legitimacy of the death penalty. The civil government doesn't have to kill everybody, but the civil government has as its highest ability, with reference to the punishment of criminal doers, the sword. And that sword wasn't simply to give them a few lashes. It was rather to end their lives. That's the demand of Romans 13. Now, with reference to, secondly, the wretchedness of the leaders, they go tit for tat with Jesus. He condemns them by Moses in 729 or 719. So they want to condemn him by Moses now with this guilty, vile woman. The leaders have no regard for the law. The leaders are engaged in testing Jesus so they might accuse him. They, they tip their hand, or at least John tips his hand and tells us what their issues are. They're not concerned with Moses. They're not concerned with the woman. They're not concerned with righteousness. It was a, it was a sham, the whole thing from, from beginning to end. The leaders use a guilty woman as a pawn. Now, again, I think this resonates with us at least a bit. You know, what's the first thing that happens in a, in a school shooting? The political left stands on the grave to take away the guns of people that will never shoot children. It's insane. They use them as pawns. Brethren, there is nothing new under the sun. If the devil was a liar from the beginning and he was a murderer from the beginning, there's going to be some consistency in the kingdom of darkness as we proceed. And so what we see our current leadership doing, it's not something brand new. Wow, I can't believe they've gotten so wicked. Read a little history, read a little Bible, read about Manasseh, read about Ahab, read about some of those, those wretched kings that, that the northern kingdom had, or even the southern kingdom. Southern kingdom was punctuated by a few decent men or good men, but they had a lot of bad ones as well. And the leaders are guilty ultimately of violating the seventh commandment. Their own consciences are convicted. But I want to end on the glory of the Savior. He upholds or rather navigates the horns of a dilemma. He manages to maintain he's pro-Moses and he's pro-compassion. 
He's not only for the law, but he's also the one who has come to save his people from their sins. The Lord Jesus demonstrates the truthfulness of John 7. John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The woman was guilty of the crime and sin of adultery, but she finds forgiveness from the Savior. And in verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. She didn't do this willingly. She didn't wake up or rather, you know, sort of disassociate herself in that act of adultery and say, yeah, I just want to go get judged by Jesus right now. She was an unwilling participant in this debacle. She didn't go to this willingly or happily or with her desire intact. But what happens nonetheless? Our blessed Savior extends forgiveness. He teaches that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He affirms what Zechariah announced, a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. After declaring theology in John 1, 1 to 18, in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, John's declaration concerning the economy of salvation is 129. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That includes guilty, vile, sinful adulteresses who are caught in the very act. So she is brought as an unwilling participant. But through the course of this proceeding, she saw him for who he was. And she confesses him as Lord, and he receives her to himself, forgives her of her sins, and demonstrates to us what Paul will later from this vantage point write. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. We all know that, right? That's just principally in our hearts. We as creatures of God know that it's righteous with God for him to judge us. Romans 1.32 teaches us that. What is absolutely mind-blowing is what Paul goes on to say. And, and, and such were some of you. You mean in the church in Corinth, there were those kinds of desperately bad people? Yes, that's what I mean. Do you know that the word Corinthianize was a verbal form of the city Corinth, which spoke of sexual immorality, perversity, wickedness? Notice that when the apostle says homosexuals or sodomites, he is not being tautological. He's not saying the same term twice. He's talking about the, the active participant and the passive participant. These were technical terms applied to the condition of persons who were previously engaged in that conduct in Corinth. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. This woman is in the trophy case of our blessed savior. I read a quote to our church a couple of weeks ago. It's from Alexander White. And he says, true saints are great sinners seeking to taste the love of Christ. And that is I, my hope and prayer for us today is that as we gather in the Lord's house on the Lord's day with the Lord's people, it is to seek a taste of the love of, the, of Christ who saved us from our sins. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account of the woman caught in adultery. And we know, Father, that you are gracious and merciful. The apostle says in, in Ephesians 1 that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 
You are not miserly. You're not Ebenezer Scrooge when it comes to giving out grace, but there is an infinite storehouse of, of grace and mercy and loving kindness from our gracious God. We pray this gospel would be proclaimed throughout the earth today, that it would run swiftly and be glorified, and that you would gather from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, sinners, to come to our blessed Savior, to confess him as Lord and Savior. And we ask this in his name. Amen.